Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hello everyone, welcome to Freedom of Species, the show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves here on 3CR. You just heard Sally Goldner with Out of the Pan, and she finished with Richard Clapton, Solidarity. Today, it's myself, Trevor, and Megan. Hello. And um, before we go, I'd just like to quickly say that we acknowledge the lands of the Rundry people that we're on, and as the traditional owners, and that we think about the fact that this is their land. It's been stolen. It's a part of our lives every day. And we have to really think about what that means when we're living on this land that's still occupied and is unresolved. I think that's yeah something that we don't always think about enough. Um, but today's show, Megan. Absolutely. Let's go. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for introducing Trev. Um, welcome to the show, everyone. Today it is uh, all about animal consciousness and self-awareness. Uh, so, yeah, uh, if you heard our um, combined uh, Trev-Meg episode a couple of episodes ago, we <laughs> talked about uh, animal friendships, animal-human friendships, and we touched upon a few of the topics we're going to touch upon today, um, you know, just in regards to the complexity of animals uh, and their selves. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to, to get into it. So, uh, yeah. Uh, self-awareness and self-consciousness in animals and should this affect the way that we treat animals in our everyday lives mm. um, you know and it's a it's a definitely a big question because one of the things we still encounter in society is this idea that um, you know if a brute is not aware then it should be something that we can use for food mm. for clothing etc and what we wanted to do is rather than just have a look on the surface at this notion of uh, you know self-awareness and self-consciousness being an important factor of how we in, you know in, interact with with animals going into the detail and having a look and teasing it out and seeing if it's still as clear cut um, mm. for some people. Um, so that's what we want to do today. The other thing that we're going to do is uh, the three th songs that we're going to feature today are from uh, local vegan artist Plum Green. Uh, mm. So we've got three brilliant songs from her latest album, Somnambulistic. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll hear some of those and we'll talk about um, a little bit about Plum and her music as well yeah, uh, cool. in the show. Nice. All right, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of it. Okay, so the first thing we want to do is we want to have a look at the question, what is consciousness and self-awareness? Now, obviously, consciousness and self-awareness are two different things, but for the scope of this show, we're going to treat them as, they're, as if they're interchangeable. Um, consciousness is actually a tricky thing to define. We know 
we know what it is intuitively because you and I experience it ourselves every day. Mm. Uh, We understand that it's the act of being aware of our surroundings uh, and ourselves as a separate entity to our surroundings and also as a separate entity to the other creatures that are around us. Like I know that I'm not you, Trev, and you know that you're not me. Mm. Uh, That's a form of self-awareness and self-consciousness. We know that we're separate entities. (coughs) And believe it or not, scientists and philosophers can't actually agree upon a single definition for consciousness and self-awareness or even a definitive list of requirements for the state of self-awareness, which is pretty intriguing. Mm. It's that complex. And this makes it difficult to determine the state of self-awareness in humans, let alone try to define it in non-human animals. Uh, And so we set the scene for the idea that because consciousness is so complex and so tricky, the answer is, you know, is going to be complex in itself. So consciousness, let's give a background of consciousness. Consciousness must have evolved for a purpose, as with all other traits for survival. So essentially uh, what we have is uh, across the billions of years that uh, animals have evolved, we have developed traits for survival and those traits for survival have either been really effective and our ancestors have survived and produced offspring, et cetera, or they've been not so successful and those those parts of the animal kingdom have died away. Yeah. Um, and so what we see is um, it's evolved gradually, consciousness, over a, a, mm. a matter a long period of time. Um, from a set of traits that have helped animals survive. So it's essentially a mental toolkit of sorts. Um, And it's a mental toolkit that actually has quite a number of tools in it. Um, And I just want to go through some tools that basically set up consciousness and talk about them and talk about how humans have them and how some animals have them, etc. And just delve into the detail and the nitty gritty of it. Um, So... Self-awareness is actually often seen uh, by those who study it as a gradient. It's not an on and off switch. So yeah. it's, that's something that a lot of people don't realise. You don't suddenly have consciousness, you don't, then you don't not have consciousness. And consciousness as a state actually in, varies inside an individual from time to time. So you and I were both children, Trev. Um, we yeah, developed yeah. consciousness and that usually comes about th- that we start to gain those tools about six to eight months uh, into our lives mm. after we're born. Um, and then we just gradually develop this toolkit over time and we're not really fully conscious and conscious of ourselves until we probably reach about five or six years of age, which is an interesting factor. So the individual, ourselves, as humans, we are not fully conscious for a period of our lives yeah. um, and then of course you've got the things like well you and I go to sleep we go to bed and we sit we, we sleep for hours a day and we're unconscious that doesn't mm. make us non-conscious creatures but our state of consciousness has changed our state of consciousness can also change with other things. So we're talking about uh, mind-altering drugs that can change yep. our state of consciousness. Uh, if we go outside onto the road and get hit by a car, we can fall into a coma and that alters our state of consciousness. Uh, even Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, there's so many things that can alter our state of consciousness. Yeah. Um, so we have this notion that state of consciousness is this static thing and it's everybody has it and you know it's just a thing we don't question it even emotional trauma actually exactly yeah. can actually change our state of consciousness yeah. and how we relate to ourselves as well um so we we know from from what we've just said that states of consciousness can change uh it changes over time for an individual it also changes between individuals so my 
state of consciousness and my view of myself and reality is different to your view and yourself and reality and, and different to a third person's view. Mm. So the idea that this consciousness is this one static changing thing is actually a myth. It's not something that's static. It's not something that is just as a given, essentially. It's just for most people, it feels like it's on or off within them because exactly. of how they exist on their because of adult how- or at least non-infant lives. Exactly. And if you have a look at it, um, our experience, we fall into the trap of thinking that our experience is the one or one, the be all end all, the only state of experience and the only information that we need to Mm. proceed in in the world. And look where that gets us. That gets us into a whole bunch of trouble in so many areas. And this is what we're trying to have a look at and trying to analyze today. So, um, Mm. yeah, it's very, it's quite interesting. And then you've also got the idea that um, states of consciousness are in people. So, you know, if you have a look at someone who might have um, cognitive disabilities, uh, their state of consciousness is definitely different, significantly different to, say, the average person's state of consciousness as well. So we get to talk about, you know, and question that kind of thing. Um, Which is sort of like, you mean, the difference between at a species level of what's possible versus at an individual level within that species, the variation because of all those various factors, like whether it's from birth and genetics or whether it's through trauma or illness or whatever. Exactly. And so in each species, uh, any trait has often has a spectrum. Yeah. And consciousness is exactly the same. Consciousness in humans has a spectrum. Yeah. And um, some people more aware than others. Exactly. For all those reasons we talked about. And that can still be the same in different animals. Exactly. Depending on their experiences or their genetic makeup or whatever. That's right. And so this is entirely tricky and complex. It's definitely not a cut and dried situation whatsoever, no matter how you look at it. And I think what happens is when the scientists and philosophers start to delve down into the deep, the deep details – Uh, And they don't simply take things for granted. They understand that the more they know, the less they know about consciousness itself as Mm. well. Um, And this is just, we're talking just about humans as well. We're not talking about the different types of consciousness and states of self-awareness that maybe animals have, which we will talk about um, in a second. So, yeah, um, I guess what we want to do is now move into the second part of the of the um, analyzing the states of consciousness and get into the uh, the idea that consciousness is a mental toolbox. And so over time, as I mentioned, uh, creatures who are our ancestors and the ancestors of other creatures have developed these uh, sets of traits in our mental toolbox to help us navigate the world um, and to survive, essentially. So one of those things, and this is kind of relating back to the the previous um, the, the previous show that we did together, talking about animal friendships, is something called object permanence. Mm. Now, um, what if if I hold up a pen and then I put it behind the you know the computer screen, I don't immediately think that that pen doesn't exist anymore. I know for a fact that that pen is still there. It's it's got permanence, uh, and when I bring it back out. It hasn't popped back into existence. And it doesn't it's, surprise you. Exactly, exactly. Now, you'd think um, – so object permanence is a very important thing and it's an important trait for survival. So imagine if you were, um, you know, a creature back in the mists of time and you were looking for your offspring who'd gone behind a rock. You don't think that that offspring is, doesn't exist anymore. Um 
you can go and find that offspring and help protect it and care for it and allow it to survive to the next generation to produce its own offspring. The same with food. Um, you know, if food is hiding behind the rock, you don't think it doesn't exist anymore and go and you go off to try and, you know, expend more energy to, to, to find other food. You know that it's just simply hiding from you. Mm. And so, therefore, your chance of survivability is increased because you know that things are still in existence. And if we have a look at object permanence um, from a human perspective, object permanence occurs about the eight-month mark for humans. Right. So even in our baby state, we have no idea what's going on. We mm. don't know. And and I guess if you look at the, the game of peekaboo, yeah, suddenly yeah. Uh, your parrot's face has disappeared and then they've come back again. I mean, what a neat <laughs> trick. You exist and then you don't exist. This is brilliant. Um, yet if we have a look at object permanence in chickens and you'll get to know that I'll mention chickens pretty much every show if I can because they're one of my favourite animals and I'm totally fascinated by them. Um, chickens actually gain object permanence within a matter of days. Right. So a chicken hatches from an egg, it wanders around the yard and its mother goes behind a bush. The chicken doesn't necessarily think that it's alone and uh, and it doesn't have a mother anymore. It actually knows that the mum's behind the bush, which is amazing. You is know? That, do you think that's related to the fact that Chickens have a lower lifespan, like they only live to normally about four or five years Absolutely. instead of years. Like yeah, and faster. I thought about that. And if you have a look at it, maybe it's to do with that. But then also if you think about it, it's still equivalent to a human level of object permanence in that yeah. case because that chicken is still a baby mm. and the human baby is still a baby. But both of them are recognising now object mm. permanence, which kind of puts paid to the idea that, um, you know, we, we have this myth that chickens are quite um, <coughs> dumb creatures. And, you know, we have we have this ability, some of us, to, diff- you know, to distance ourselves from a creature we think is perhaps not as smart as us so that we can mm. eat them or we can use their feathers. Yeah. Um, and so breaking that down, you have a look at it. Yeah, a chicken's not so different to a human in regards to this particular mental tool, object permanence. Well, from what yeah. you were saying before, I don't know if this will help listeners as well if they're new to thinking about this concept, but it's almost like different species will have a different band, which is a range of like their typical consciousness level, and that humans might have the highest band currently that we know of, but it doesn't mean that others don't. It's just mm. hard to measure. But that if you, if you imagine like like bands on a rainbow or rungs on a ladder. Mm. And it's like the gap. So it's not that every single animal is always going to have the exact same level of consciousness, but each chicken will sort of have this range. Like you'll have people at the bottom end and the high end of this range, which is like the chicken range. And then humans you'll normally have, this is the bottom and the top end of the human range for those various. And sometimes those those ranges might overlap or they might Mm. be completely separate in the differences between certain species. And I'm also Mm. imagining that 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 band will change over time with evolution. So over tens of thousands of years or over millions of years that they'll normally all be going up. And so all these different animal species that do have consciousness in some way, they're slowly evolving. So those bands are slowly creeping up and up and being able to do more and more because we've been able to do more and more. Absolutely. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. And that's actually a really good point because that brings us back to our next um, our next toolbox, our ne- next tool in the mental toolbox. And um, it shows that whilst the aspects of consciousness are different for each individual and different for each species, what we de- deem as being quite important um, 
is deemed by us and our human brains mm. as being quite important. Now, if you have a look, it, it's actually that's really good segue into this next one. So the next one is um, a concept called delayed gratification. So essentially what that means is you can have uh, this donut on a plate or you can wait for half an hour and if you don't eat the donut, you can have two donuts. So that's delayed gratification, essentially. Um, and Where, where's this place where donuts are multiplied? I know, right? <laughs> Somebody's just doing. All you have to do is wait and not eat the donut. Well, where, where is it? What's, <laughs> it would be nice. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> it's called delayed gratification central. <laughs> um, but here's the interesting thing. Okay, I, I wanted to start with something else, but I'm going to start with this this particular bit. So squirrels. Um, what they do is they go and hide all of these nuts and foods for the winter. So essentially what they're doing is they're ensuring a greater uh, greater uh, possibility of survival through the mm. low food months in winter because they hide these stashes of nuts. Um, it actually brings up – but it's good to, to sort of um, talk about it in the way that you were talking about it because, okay, a squirrel actually has to have a very advanced uh, – location map in their heads about Mm. where their stashes are now if you have a look at that compared to a human we don't stash nuts and we don't generally tend to have to know where the you know where things are as a matter of survival to the degree that the squirrel is Mm. so arguably the squirrel has a better locational ability than the average human because their very survival depends on it now that is a part of consciousness, locational ability, location to you know the ability to understand that the future is dependent upon your memory of where you stash your food. Yeah. Um, but because we see that as a lowly squirrel, we think, oh well, that's just a squirrel thing. That's not that's not them being better at being conscious than us. That's just simply a squirrel and it has to do it to survive. But we're putting that value on the squirrel and their ability and their possible betterness at that ability than us, yeah, which is a very interesting factor. And again, it's something that we have to take into account. We are putting these values onto these animals. We are doing this. We are looking at it from a human perspective. Mm. Um, but getting back to that um, delayed gratification, um, this is actually something that human children have a big problem with. So, um, <laughs> Just children? Yeah, well, everybody actually. But <laughs> if we have a look at, you know, the, the idea that consciousness is a gradient and, and, and children um, often don't have an understanding of the future and future ramifications, if you put a two-year-old child in front of a plate, let's say we'll go back to the donut story, put a, put a donut on a plate in front of a child and say to them, if you don't eat this donut for 10 minutes, I will come back in 10 minutes and give you a second donut. Now, remember, 10 minutes is a huge amount of time for a child. You can either eat that donut now or you can wait 10 minutes and you can eat two donuts. Now, what often happens is the child just goes, looks at the donut and goes, there is a donut on my plate. I'm able to eat this donut. I will eat this donut. There is no concept of the future and delayed gratification bringing more rewards. Whereas a chicken, we're going back to the chicken, a chicken can, an adult chicken can actually understand that if a plate of food is put in front of it and it's a small amount of food, if they wait, they will be granted a larger amount of food if they do not eat that food. Mm. So delayed gratification for future reward. That is absolutely a concept that this squirrel can understand, that many birds that put away food can understand, and then this chicken who's been given a plate of food um, you know, can wait and understand. So that actually uh, 
basically proves the idea of a sense of time passing and a sense of future and future ramifications, which is a very, very important part of our consciousness and our self-awareness because we know that we're actually going through time and what we do now affects what happens in the future. Mm. That's a huge step towards consciousness. So, yeah, um, that's just kind of the delayed gratification thing. The other thing in the mental toolbox that we might get to maybe a bit after uh, this song that we're going to play now, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I've just realised it's uh, it's getting late. Um, but we're just going to go in and look at Plum Green's first song, Raspberry Vine, off her latest album, Somnambulistic. Um, Plum has basically been um, described in many ways, uh, dark folk artist, ambient dream folk a uh, whole bunch of things. But have a listen to this song, Raspberry Vine. It's an absolutely beautiful song, part of her latest album, Sonambulistic.
Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. If you like to reduce your risk of dementia, the Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. listening to 3CR Freedom of Species radio show. That was a Raspberry Vine by a local vegan artist Plum Green. Yeah, if that was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. It's a beautiful song. And the two other songs that we're going to feature here today are all from Plum's Green latest, Plum Green's latest album, uh, Sonambulistic, um, which is interesting because Sonambulistic is actually the state of consciousness achieved when you're asleep. So it's kind of apt for this show, which is great. I'd like to say that I planned that, but I didn't. Um, yeah, so uh, if you'd like to have a look at Plum's music, you can go to plumgreenmusic.com and check out all of her um, her latest music. Uh, I wanted to just read a little bit about a review from Guitar Girl about this latest album, Sonambulistic by Plum. Yeah, cool. Uh, Sonambulistic is a rousing collection of dark lullabies, each of its nine stirring tracks ebb and flow with otherworldly grace, manifesting one pulsing dream narrative. Guided by guitar, Plum Green's voice travels through the walls of bowed sandscapes. Uh, yeah, and it says a stranger lures you into the forest, following the wraith deeper and deeper until you become lost. You entwine yourself with its shadows and vines until you realise you have become a part of the it forever. Mm. I absolutely love that. She, she's she got a beautiful way with both her lyrics and also her, her singing style. It's very ethereal. Um, I know Plum personally and I just I think she's an absolutely fantastic artist who also is um, the sort of person who thinks about animals, which is great, and, you know, thinks about their welfare. Yeah, so, cool. yeah, absolutely lovely song. And you'll hear a couple more songs um, from her in the show coming up. Uh, but, yes, back to the matter at hand, Trev. Consciousness. Consciousness, the state of self-awareness in both humans and animals. And should it matter to our treatment to how we treat animals, basically? Um, so, yeah, we were looking at the uh, the mental toolbox, the things in evolution that have culminated to create this self-awareness that we have in humans and 
you know, what are they, where have they come from, why have they evolved, You sort of mean like building blocks in a way? They are, essentially building blocks of consciousness and self-awareness. That's right. Um, Now, we did talk about a couple of different ones. Uh, We talked about object permanence, then we talked about delayed gratification. Uh, All of these things are things that have increased our survivability over time as we've evolved. Uh, The next one I wanted to talk about um, is actually an experiment um, that has been devised. It's called the mirror experiment. And this essentially shows um, creatures that can understand that a mirror image that they're seeing in a mirror is not another creature. It's actually themselves. And this is a very important part of looking at consciousness and understanding Um, your surroundings in regards to yourself and your own inner landscape. So so essentially the mirror experiment is, I'll just explain what it is to you. So what is is done uh, is that some kind of mark is put upon uh, the animal in in question. So it could be a human child, uh, it could be an elephant or it could be whatever. So the mark, maybe a chalk mark or a little sticker or something like that, is put on where the, the creature cannot see it. So they can't see it if it's on them. It's not put on their hand, maybe it's put on their head. They can't see it if they don't have a mirror. Yep. And then a mirror is introduced to this um, being and they look at the mirror and you do all the things that, you know, that creatures do in the mirror they sort of look at the mirror is it me you know is it is it is it what's happening you know this creature is doing exactly the same thing that i'm doing mm. etc and then they notice the mark now remember the mark can't be seen without the mirror it can only be seen with the mirror so what the 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 creature in question does next determines whether it is self-aware and that the if whether the creature in the mirror is seen as itself mm. now uh an animal or indeed a child of a certain age, a human child of a certain age, um, will look at the mirror and look at the mark and try to take the mark or, or rub the mark off the mirror itself. Thinking some animals. Some animals, yeah. exactly. Not all animals. Not all animals, absolutely. And then other animals will look at the, the mark on the creature in the mirror and they'll realise that that is themselves and they'll try to take the sticker off or rub the mark off themselves Mm. not the mirror this is a very important distinction so at the moment and we discussed this um you know before the show trevor we can get into this (laughs) this is going to be good um at the moment science recognizes that there are eight types of animals that pass the mirror test so they can recognize that the image in the mirror is actually themselves and they will try to take the mark or the sticker off themselves and those Eight types of creatures are all the great apes, which are humans, us, chimps, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans. But also dolphins, a bird called the magpie, not actually our magpie, believe it or not, uh, and also elephants. Yes. Now, I know that we had a discussion about this, and I also want to, before, I, before we uh, get into that discussion, I also want to say that um, I'm very surprised that members, other members of the COVID family are not on this. And I would actually have to look into For that and see. COVID A. Like I'm sorry. Yes, That's I was right. getting to the science of it. So, COVIDs are crows. Uh, ravens, oh, yep. uh, magpies, our magpies, um, and you know things like currawongs, uh, who are very highly intelligent creatures. There have been so many, uh, you know, experiments on the cognitive ability of crows and ravens, etc. 
it's interesting to me that they fail the mirror test. Mm. And this is where it comes in that, you know, we were talking about the mirror test as possibly something that's only an indicator and not a be-all, end-all of this self-awareness of you know, the image in the mirror being themselves or not. And I'm going to lead you in. No, quickly before. Yeah. You mentioned something about our magpies and other magpies. What's this difference between magpies? Oh, well, there's actually – so – the, the the species known as magpies is actually a range of species as with, oh, okay. you know, the same with crows, like same with, rays, with ravens, etc. Yes, but the the ravens, the, sorry, the, the, the magpies overseas that this, this uh, experiment has been done on are not the same species as the magpies here in Australia. Oh, right. Okay. So, and I would be interested to know if the mirror the the mirror test has been done on our magpies. Um, I, I do not, I could not find evidence of it having been done. Oh. So these are... These are magpies, not Australian magpies. I didn't know there was two different species. Of oh, magpies. absolutely! You if you think about it, so the term magpie and the term crow—they're actually an umbrella term for a whole bunch of species, right? A whole bunch of crow species, whole bunch of magpie species. I mean, if you have a look at elephants, there's at least I think what two species: Indian and Asian yeah. elephants, um, or sorry, African and Asian ele- elephants. So it's just an umbrella term, essentially. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But that brings us to the story that you wanted to tell me <laughs> about your dog and about the mirror. So, well, yeah, I mean, I was just wondering, well, before to lead in, I think it's um, it's interesting that this mirror experiment, I think it's interesting to think maybe which animals are easier to participate or which for which animals yes. it's easier for them to participate in this experiment and for which and animals... And for us to interpret the data as yeah. well. Yeah, well, that was my yeah. next point. It was like, yeah. A, to actually put them in front of a mirror where they care enough about the mirror rather than just anything else in their environment mm. and B, to make sure that you're putting something on their face or on their head that they care about enough that they're going to react yes. to. Um they're just other things. Like maybe they've already thought about that, but that's just the first things that came to mind. When it was like, well, limitations of those experiments or what might be later expanding the way that they can classify which species might pass the test if they do different things. But who knows? But it got me thinking about dogs because um, we've got a foster dog, which people have heard about before, but his name's Duke. And he reacts to... Every dog he ever sees, um, he reacts to every cat he sees, he reacts to every possum he sees. And, mm. you know, it's, it's a bit of a problem. That's why he's a foster. We're trying to get it, work with him to make it more manageable. But at mm. the moment, every single time he sees a cat or a dog, he will react. And when I take him on a walk, and I, I do so in places where there aren't any other dogs most of the time, but occasionally we'll go past mirrored surfaces and mirrors and he doesn't react to the white dog in the mirror that looks exactly like Duke. He doesn't even react at all, but he'll react as soon as he sees any other dog or any other cat, even white, even white ones that are big like him. And you were mentioning, cause I said, well, maybe that's because he smells the other animals. Um, but you, yeah, yeah. So I think, well, cause there was just one time we walk him, you know, around midnight so that we're not getting mm. other animals around, but occasionally there are cats in the neighborhood that are out and about and there's been many times where we're walking past uh, someone's front yard or on the on the street and I'll see a cat first and he hasn't noticed because he's busy sniffing whatever's around him, you know, a tree or whatever. And it's not until we get very close to the cat and it's when he and it's it's only when his eyes are pointing towards the cat that he starts to react. He doesn't react to a smell first. He we've walked past possums that he's never even noticed are there. 
and he and I'll see them on the branch and he doesn't and he just walks past our nose. But sometimes if we're walking up and he sees the possum, he'll stop, head straight up, looking at the possum on alert. So it definitely to me seems like either he's being swamped with smells all the time of mm. dogs and cats and possums so that it's not always a, a good indicator, but it's the visual, it's definitely the visual eye contact that he makes with another animal that causes him to start reacting. And that's but really it doesn't happen with the mirror image of himself. Yeah. And so, I mean, how are we to interpret that? And I'm sure, I mean, I, I know I've had uh, the same thing. I've, I've had uh, companion animals who've not ever reacted to the image in the mirror. Uh, and some of them have. Mm. I mean, it's always that gradation, isn't it, between, um, you know, individuals in a species. And how does that then affect the mirror experiment and as you yeah. said maybe there's different priorities maybe there's different um you know things that we're not looking at and again who's designing these experiments yeah. people are designing these experiments yeah. who prioritizes or, or analyzes the data and comes up with the conclusion that the experiment has passed or failed humans do yeah and so even though that's anecdotal evidence um i think that there's enough anecdotal evidence to say at the very least what we have in these eight types of animals that do pass the mirror test is the very least amount of animals that would pass this yeah. this conscious mirror test. I think that because, you know, science is always, uh, you know, obtaining data and working that data into the current worldview that they have. And I think that this is something that is still fuzzy. The edges yeah. are still fuzzy. This is just a small list of ones exactly. that are undeniably that we passed. Know. Exactly. They, they cannot be considered to have failed because yes. it's conclusively proven that they're passed. But there's probably more that can pass. We just Absolutely. We haven't adequately tested for it yet. And we don't adequately understand the, the dynamics of consciousness enough to actually do it as well. Yeah. Maybe they are, as you said, they are actually uh, quite aware that that's their own mirror image, but their, um, their motivations to acknowledge it as their own image is different. Maybe well, they just don't bother. I was thinking when you were talking about yeah. it that, I don't know what I would have to put on Duke's head for him to actually react and care that there's something on his head because he takes yeah. all manner of, if there's dirt, if there's leaves, things stuck, yeah. he just doesn't care. He just keeps going on. Yeah. So it would be interesting what would be, for me, I think it would have to be a big chunk of food. But then he would <laughs> smell that food. So how do you tease it out? How This is the thing, you know. Uh, and again, like scientists are always thinking of these things, but we are always edging out that knowledge barrier further and further into yeah. the unknown as we accumulate data. And one thing before we go on it, so other people can look it up um, so they don't think that I'm just talking about Duke as a super dog, um, even though we love Duke and we do think he's a super dog. But <laughs> regardless of that, um, there was a TV show called Dogs Behaving Very Badly, which had a, you know, I was watching it because I liked it was, it's about a dog behavioralist who helps people that have dogs with interesting behavior problems. And I thought as foster carers, that could be really, you know, helpful to, to learn some of these common things that dogs have behavioral issues with. And it's always the humans that are the problem, by the way. Like the dogs <laughs> get the problems from the humans and the way they treat them. But um, there was an episode, hopefully you can find it on YouTube. But if you want to look for it, there was a dog that the problem was they were constantly staring at their own reflection in photographs, glass, you know, um, frames or on the TV when it's off or in the window, anywhere that there was a, a partially visible reflection, they would just sit there and stare for minutes and minutes and minutes, maybe half an hour on end, 
just in a family room at home. And the, the people, the, the, um, the owners or the, the companion humans couldn't figure out what it was. And it turned out to be that the dog wasn't looking at their own reflection. They were looking at the owners or the, the humans in the reflection and they were staring at the dog because they were trying to work out why the dog is staring at themselves in the reflection. And the dog was just getting the attention of being stared at by their owners and that's ah. what the dog wanted. And the dog would never do this behavior when the owners were out of the room. And they set up the cameras because of the TV show. It was dogs behaving very mm. badly. If you want to look it up, hopefully you can find it. And the dog would never do it. And it was only when the owners came back in, the dog was competing for their attention and using the reflection as a way that they'd found to get their attention. And they, they were then able to convince the dog not to do that anymore by giving more you know, positive reinforcement when the dog came directly to them mm. rather than looking at them through a reflection. But that's another example of dogs definitely being able to see reflections and know who they're looking at in reflections. Exactly, because they knew that it was the owner in the reflection. Not just some random people. Exactly. And so they knew that that wasn't the actual, their family member. It was it was a reflection of their family member. Exactly. And so they were trying to get the, the, the attention of that person through the reflection, which actually shows that they understand that this is a reflection. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. How fascinating. And mm. yet... We know because we looked this up because uh, Trev's like, are you sure dogs have failed the mirror test? And I said, oh, I am sure. And we looked it up and indeed they have. But again, we question whether this is something that we can be clear uh, is an indicator of passing or failing this test. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be personally interested to see if pigs could pass it because I think pigs are probably just as aware and yeah. intelligent as dogs, if not more so. But then again, we were talking about the types of consciousness. Maybe the pig is not motivated at all to indicate that that is an image. How do you motivate a That's pig it. to indicate that that is its, its own image? Mm. <laughs> and again, because we know so little of consciousness in humans, we then have to extrapolate a lot further about consciousness in animals. Mm. And so I think we're going to get it wrong for quite some time. And I yeah. think the boundary of what is known and what is unknown is going to continue to shift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think on that note, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the next song um, from Plum's uh, album, Sonambulistic. It is called Walk Against the Wind. Walk against the wind We swim upstream We look towards the moon We move, we don't know He drags my feet I slide on blankets Slipping, stumbling 
In 2003, the American peace activist Rachel Corey was killed for opposing the demolition of Palestinian homes in the Gaza Strip. Join Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria for a public screening of Rachel, a film about her murder and its subsequent cover-up. Come and support the struggle for a free Palestine, Thursday the 23rd of March, 6.30pm at the Old Arts Lecture Theatre, University of Melbourne. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. And 
we are back. You are listening to Freedom of Species at 3CR Community Radio. That was Walk Against the Wind by Plum Green. If you like her music, you can go to plumgreenmusic.com to hear more of her beautiful ballads. We have one more of her songs to come up. Uh, So, yes, we're going to move on. So we're dealing with uh, animal consciousness uh, this, Mm. this show and how it should relate to how we interact with animals. So we've been talking about the the mental toolbox and the cognitive uh, traits that have brought about consciousness in humans and, you know, just breaking them down. The last one we're going to do before we actually talk about um, the wider ramifications of, you know, consciousness in animals uh, is the the toolbox of or the the mental tool of language. Mm. Uh, Now, I wanted to talk about this one because um, a lot of people still see language as the strict uh, territory of humans. Yeah. So, you know, we, we see people speaking all the time, um, you know, and even if we can't understand the language, we understand that it is a language. Yeah. But what we don't necessarily do is transpose that knowledge into the animal kingdom and understand that a lot of animals have a language of their own. Mm. I wanted to go into a couple of examples, but there are many, many examples in, in, the, um, in the animal kingdom. And just really quickly, the reason why we're talking about language and consciousness is that we have the ability to transfer information from one creature to another with language. It's very important in both understanding and acquiring knowledge to evolve ourself as a conscious being, but also to use this language to form thoughts in our mind and evolve our, our, our consciousness in that way internally. Um, and can I just ask before you go on, yeah, are you talking primarily about verbal languages or are you talking about all sorts of we're actually like, body gonna, language as well? Well, see, body language is interesting because we're humans are social creatures. Body language also conveys information. So essentially any kind of uh, visual, uh, audible, I mean, even smell can be mm. a language, um, any kind of information exchange from one creature to another, essentially. Um, but we call language what is verbal, but body language is also a, a language. It's a verbal language and if you look at sign language that's an actual visual um, language yeah so again same with consciousness once you go into the details mm. well, the definition of language gets quite fun- fuzzy yeah. so and again that's the reason why we have to delve into the deepness of it all well the other reason i mentioned those because some species might weigh more on one or the other exactly because they'll, they'll normally do a bit of a blend yes. maybe even more than what we do absolutely well if you have a look at um in, in that particular instance whales so whales are often at a great distance to each other and they can't have a look at visual body cues and they can't look at the expression on another whale's face so they use sound and mm. pretty much sound in, in its entirety is, yeah. is their language um, and we'll get back to whales in a second um, but what I wanted to do is um, just have a talk about um, language in regards to a number of different species let me just go have a look okay so again we just sort of said language is a tool it's a tool for information mm. uh, and it can be things that are other than uh, audible language yep. uh, even in humans so I want to go I want to tell you this little anecdote and this is just crazy this is um, it's about parrots so uh, a researcher was uh, studying parrots and that they this researcher came to the conclusion that it sounded like the parrots actually had language and other scientists were like no they're just random sounds don't be silly so an experiment was set up there were microphones in nesting boxes of these parrots um, and what they actually found was something absolutely stunning and this is absolutely definitively language. So what it 
what what they found was that um, bird the parrot parents were actually giving their children a name. So each individual baby parrot was given a name. Yeah, wow. And even better, it's, it's, it gets even better, the parrot, the baby parrot understood that this name, this sound, this collection of sounds that was given to them was their name and they would introduce themselves as that. Yeah, and wow. they knew their sibling and their parents' names. So this is Jeez. an absolutely, there is no way to argue that this is not a language, yeah. that this is not language. And this is something, again, that we have to look at and say, okay, we see language as the territory of humans, right? And anything else is, oh, it's not really language, it's just, you know, I don't know, it's just what animals do. We can't deny this. Mm. Even from our human perspective and our human acquisition of knowledge, we cannot deny that this is actually a phenomena. I want to move more away from um, the the idea that it's only sound and also onto uh, the idea of visual languages yeah. um, because even humans, we have Auslan here in Australia. Um, bees, bees communicate via language. Now, this is an interesting one. So bees come back to, after having discovered a food source, they come back to the hive, they do a little dance for the other worker bees and this little dance conveys information on the distance to that food source and also the direction of the food source. Yeah, that's amazing. Have a think about this. Not only do bees have language and convey this to other bees, but bees have to understand the concept of distance yeah. and they have to understand the concept of direction. So three hits in one, we have these very complex ideas in the minds of an insect a creature that the average person would not think was um, a creature that was able to have any kind yeah. of conscious ability. And yet this tool is already in existence in the insect family. And even to a lesser extent, birds, as you mentioned, Absolutely. like they're not considered to be at the top of the consciousness or no. evolved species on, on Earth. So yeah. I think this really shows that. There's maybe a lot of gaps that we need to find out of how far so different species have different levels of consciousness available. Absolutely. And so, you know, we've got all of that. And, and again, we come back to the whales and um, just to really quickly go to the whales. Uh, whales have individual language. So each species has a particular language. But within the whale grouping of species they have dialects of yeah. language wow. and the I, I wish I could remember what the podcast was but a, a whale researcher was saying how she had seen a particular song that a population had developed just go like wildfire across half of the planet wow. and these whales had had learned this song and passed it on to the next population which had passed on to the next population Gee. and the this idea of the consciousness and transference of information and all of this sort of uh, thing that we see is the complete purview of humans it's been busted it's mm. done and dusted. We are not the only ones. We're not the only ones that have these mental tools that create consciousness and we are not the only ones that uh, can basically interact with other creatures in a very complex way. Mm. And as I said, science is always learning. We always are understanding and pushing the boundaries of what we know. So we come to the end, the end uh, part of it in that do we treat consciousness as something that we can – uh, use the lack of or or the presence of to determine our uh, the way that we treat animals as a special criteria. Exactly, yeah. and I mean honestly, here here's my my cap. So basically, consciousness is fuzzy. We don't know 
the true nature of consciousness. And we don't know the true nature of consciousness in each individual species that we interact with. And because we don't know, we need to understand that our lack of knowledge does not give us the right to assume that they do not have this, mm. this consciousness. It does not give us the right to assume that we can treat them in a way that we would not treat other humans. Well, that's it. And yeah. even if we did think that you needed a certain level of consciousness to be worthy of consideration, we're not good enough to measure that yet. We are not. To really trust what we currently know or don't know about yes. which animals pass or fail the test, as we've discussed today. Exactly. And what we're going to find in, in the future is, I believe, we're going to find that some creatures who haven't passed those tests and we, we then go back and revisit, they have. And yet yeah. we've treated them like they haven't. Yeah. So, And that's something to take away. I mean, anyone who's already with us on this um, can use this as a tool of discussion to talk to people who are maybe not on board with that idea of treating animals with compassion and, and having their own right to existence uh, and, and, and talk about that consciousness idea of that it's a gradient, it's fuzzy, we're questioning it, and we should err on the side of caution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for the fascinating show, Megan. I think that was great. Oh, as always, great I to really be enjoyed here, Trev. I hope the I, listeners yeah, enjoyed I it hope they that did. was a, a fun discussion. Yeah. And yeah, learning about that is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely was. Um, and I just wanted to um, – oh, was there anything else we had to say before you introduce the next song? No, go for it. Oh, fantastic. I just wanted to say the last song that we're going to hear from um, Plum's uh, latest album, Sonambulistic, uh, that one is Grave Snuggler. And I just wanted to really quickly say that um, Plum – is absolutely keyed into uh, this whole idea of compassion to animals and uh, she has a lot of little witty posts that she pops up on Facebook about you know putting out water out for animals and all this sort of stuff and I really think that it shows in her music um, you know her, her absolute love of compassion uh, and, and passion her passion for compassion essentially so we're going to hear Grave Snuggler and um, I hope everyone has an absolutely fantastic day and yeah. We'll be back next week, we one be. till two on Sundays. And after us, stay listening. It's rotations on your Sunday afternoon giving you some music. But this is Grave Snuggler.
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.